Father and Son and Holy Spirit, what a great joy it is to know that there are tens of millions of people around this globe singing your praises, and that prayers like the prayer which we pray virtually every week across the centuries have been answered. You've heard those prayers, that the gospel would sound forth from isolated, remote places, even to the ends of the earth, and that is happening, and we praise you for it. And again, offer these gifts to the end that it might continue to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please look with me at Matthew, chapter 21, Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. Of Jerusalem. All four of the Gospels have an account of Palm Sunday. Matthew's is the longest. The others have additional details, and I encourage you through this week not only to read uh, the Gospel accounts of Palm Sunday, but I encourage you day by day to read the Gospel accounts of the Passion Week of our Lord. Live in it, uh, live with it as we move through this week. So Matthew 21, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for your word, and as we pray virtually every week, having given us your word, now grant us your spirit. You know 
everyone who is here, O oh Lord, you know everything there is to know about each of us, and you know what each of us needs. And so walk among us, again, by the agency of your Spirit, and take from your word what each of us needs according to our need. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Kingdoms are defined by their kings. Kings imbue their kingdoms with a sense of their own identity, their own character, their own persons. We could do a little word association thing here. I'd have you close your eyes and I'd, and I'd list some names and then I'd ask you what kinds of associations were conjured up in your minds as I listed those names. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes and we're not going to have a little interaction here. But, but just for the sake of this little argument that I'm making, the idea that kings imprint upon their kingdoms, rulers imprint upon the realms over which they rule their own character and characteristics. Let me just mention a few names. And you see what comes to mind for you. Winston Churchill. Joseph Stalin. George Washington. Idi Amin, Abraham Lincoln, Robert Mugabe, just a half a dozen names. Now, you all have associations, things that you associate with those particular people. And you, and you know that you have those associations because those particular people have left the imprint of their own character upon the world in which they lived. This is Palm Sunday. The word king appears in the text, verse 4. This citation from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. The church celebrates the coming of the king, King Jesus, into the city of Jerusalem. Coming in triumph, coming to the accompanying shouts and the singing and the acclamation of thousands. He's received by the people as a king. And I've said this before, and I will say it until I can no longer breathe. This king leaves an impress of his own character upon his kingdom. And the impress of his character upon his kingdom is wildly divergent from the impress that every other ruler, every other king, leaves in his wake. Matthew gives us an account, as I said, as do Mark and Luke and John, of the coming of the king. And I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about the king himself and the impress of his character upon his kingdom because both he and his kingdom are utterly different. Utterly different. Now, look, let me, let me sort of deliver a punchline here at the beginning as opposed to at the end. You know, they do say in good preaching, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. So let me tell you that I have in mind as we wrestle with this passage, 
I have in mind the range of people who are likely here this morning, beginning with those who struggle to believe that these, are thing, that these things are true, who, who still don't know quite what to do with Jesus, to those who at some level really do know they're true but have a hard time believing that these things, both about Jesus and about his kingdom, really could be true for them. To the other end of the spectrum, those who really have believed these things and know these things to be true at some real and deep level, but who need to know again and again and again and again that they really are true. That they really are true. So I have the whole range of folks in mind as we think about this passage. Let me invite you to think just for a few minutes about the king himself, about Jesus. Look at the first five verses. When the day drew near, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now here's the first thing, and I'll put it in the form of a question. How do you account for the fact that Jesus knows this? How do you account for the fact that Jesus knows this? Jesus seems to know some things that the disciples don't know, and so he instructs them in those things which he knows. These are not matters of wisdom or spiritual insight or proverbial sayings or anything of the kind. These are hard and cold, flesh and blood, material, factual kinds of things. He knows, he knows in advance, he seems to know that there is a donkey and that the donkey has her foal with her and he tells them where they are, directs them to go and then gives them instruction in the event that someone should say, which is likely to be the case, what are you doing with these? These do not belong to you. Now, how do you account for that? I suppose you could argue, I suppose you could argue that Jesus had previously arranged this. That Jesus snuck away from his disciples for some period of of time, snuck into the village, prearranged this thing, and then on the day that they're approaching the city to go into Jerusalem, Having prearranged this thing, he knows where the donkey is, he knows where the foal is, he sends his disciples. If anybody asks you about this, it's all been prearranged. That may be the case here. There isn't anything in the text that suggests that. What is suggested by this text, and not only by this text, but by other texts, is that there is something disarmingly disarmingly unique about Jesus. And I say disarmingly, thinking, for example, of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, whose first encounter with Jesus was a disarming encounter. 
when Nathanael is introduced to Jesus and Jesus says to Nathanael, here indeed is is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. That is a character statement about someone he has not previously met to whom he's being introduced for the first time. He assesses him, he knows him, and not only does he know him in terms of his character, but he knew where he was How do you know me, Nathanael said. Jesus said, before we were introduced, I saw you under the tree. I knew you. I knew you. Folks, where are we uh, right now? We are on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday will lead to this Monday-Thursday celebration and to Good Friday, which is this very mixed both day of, of profound darkness, and yet in that darkness, there is this profound and rejoicing victory, which leads then to the consummate victory. Not Easter for us. I don't like to call it Easter. I like to call it Resurrection Day, because it's not about bunny rabbits, and it's not about hiding candy. It is about Christ gaining victory over the enemy that faces you Today, your own death. Where are we in this week? This is Palm Sunday. We're moving toward Resurrection Day. And what I want to say to you is that the Jesus who knew Nathaniel and the Jesus who knew the donkey and the foal of the donkey were tied to a hitching post in a village and gave instruction to his disciples, that Jesus is alive and he knows you and he knows me he knows precisely who you are and where you are with respect to everything in your life because he is the king of glory he is the risen lord if he is not these things if he is not these things we have no business being here right we should have worshiped If we worshipped at all, we should have worshipped yesterday. We should have gone to synagogue to await the appearing of a Messiah who has not yet come. Or we should have stared all of it in the face, considered it a whole lot of myth and fable, stayed in bed, and gotten up in time to watch the Master's. He knows things, folks. This is an attribute of divinity. And if if you're concerned that both the Nathaniel thing and this knowing the donkey and the fool, both were prearranged, there are other things. If you read through the Gospels that you've got, you've got to consider that Jesus predicted numerous times his own death and resurrection. This is what's going to happen, folks. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I will be put to death, and then there will be a resurrection. He predicted decades before the event the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it came to pass as he predicted. Jesus knows things. And then here's here's another thing. And that's an attribute of divinity. That is a feature of the divine nature, to be outside of time, to step outside of the circumstances in which we are all encased. 
and look beyond them. He knows. He knows. But here's another thing. This is very striking. When Jesus gives the instructions to his disciples, at verse 3 he says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of them. Now, there are a number of reasons that that's striking. The first reason it's striking is because Jesus' favorite self-designation, the name by which he most frequently identifies himself, is Son of Man. You want to know where the background is to that? Go to Daniel 7. That's the designation that he uses of himself in Matthew 25. The, the, the passage that describes the day of judgment when Christ will enter in to judgment with all of the nations. I think it's 25, maybe it's 26. But in this passage, he doesn't use that designation. He doesn't use the designation Son of Man. He says, the Lord has need of them. Now, folks, this is one of those little wardrobe words. This is a little word that Lucy would have stepped through. She would have been happy to step through the wardrobe and find herself in a world filled with meaning and significance. That's what words do. That's what these citations do for us. They are doorways into worlds that are filled with significance. And this little word, Lord, that Jesus uses here very self-consciously takes you back to any number of passages in the Old Testament. This word is the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures as a word to substitute for the word Adonai. And the word Adonai is a name that is given to God as Lord and Creator of everything, a God of power, the ultimate master and Lord. Yahweh is his covenant name, his personal name, the name that describes his eternal self-existence and the name that is always featured when God describes his faithfulness to his covenant people. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Yahweh blessing his people. But this is the word kurios, which is used in the Septuagint as a replacement word for Adonai. And here's a great passage a great passage that would have come to mind, I I know would have come to mind for the disciples as they heard Jesus use this word. I mean, maybe we'll get there and I'll find out that I'm wrong. And you can come and tell me that I was wrong. I'll be happy to be corrected. But in the mind of a Jew, this is the kind of passage that would have come to their minds. Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh, the God of covenant faithfulness, the Lord says to my Lord, my Kyrios, my Adonai, 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's writing the psalm? David. Of whom is he speaking? He's speaking of one superior to him. He is envisioning in this psalm the exaltation, gotta cut this short, the exaltation of the eternal Son of God who is honored and graced to sit at the right hand of his Father, reigning in glory, victorious over his enemies, and all of his enemies in good Mideastern fashion are put under his feet. Remember when George Bush had a shoe thrown at him? Symbolic of putting someone under your foot, crushing under your foot. And you know that this is taking me back to Genesis 3.15, don't you? You can hear it coming. He will bruise you on the heel. You will bruise him on the heel. He will stomp on your head. See what I mean about it being a doorway? A little word that is a doorway that takes you into a world of profound biblical, theological, redemptive significance, and frankly, a world of enormous hopefulness. Jesus, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then, of course, there's this third thing that goes on in this passage. Jesus knows things. Jesus identifies himself in this way. Right? He identifies himself as Lord. And then Matthew, as is Matthew's custom, Matthew cites the Old Testament showing us that what is happening right now with Jesus, with Jesus, is the fulfillment of what was spoken in the Old Testament. This is a habit of Matthew's. If you go back and read the early chapters of his gospel, Everywhere he is citing Old Testament passages. Why? To show us that the long-awaited Messiah King has come. Matthew 1.22, Matthew 2.5, Matthew 2.15, Matthew 2.17, Matthew 3.3, Matthew 4.14-16. You don't need to write them down. Just get a good cross-reference Bible. They will take you there. Right? Here's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Again, in a room where there are 160, 170 people, I I say this, I, I trust you hear me saying this, pastorally, I hope winsomely, I hope longingly, I hope with the same passion and compassion of the Apostle Paul, you have to deal with Jesus. You can't just dismiss Jesus as a person with special abilities. You can't dismiss Jesus, sort of push him to the periphery as someone who was wise and insightful and spiritually minded. As C.S. Lewis, you know this, many of you know this, as C.S. Lewis famously said, a man who said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or the devil of hell or worse. 
but he would not be a great moral teacher. And Lewis goes on to say, he didn't leave that option open to us. He didn't intend to. You must fall down and worship him as Lord and God. Or run the risk. Or run the risk of having rejected him, facing him as the righteous judge of the universe. There's a great citation. I'm not going to read it. It's too long. In case you're not into C.S. Lewis, but you are into you too. There's a great citation on page 204 of this sort of autobiographical interview, conversation and interview with Bono, singer and songwriter of U2, who says the same thing. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to do something with him. And so... Here's my first appeal. It's the appeal that Bob Dylan makes, actually, in his song, When He Returns. Surrender your crown on this blood-stained ground. He sees your deeds. He knows your needs, even before you ask. Surrender your crown on the blood-stained ground of the cross where the King of Glory died. And then, of course, there is the nature of his kingdom. And oh, how I wish I had four hours for this. But don't you already see? Don't you already see in the king, some of the contours, some of the nature of the kingdom that he comes to inaugurate, a kingdom he invites people into. There are a couple of references in this passage, very familiar to us. In fact, it was really, it was fun for me. It it took me back 55 years when Melinda and the musicians were playing or all the way, green palms and blossoms gay are strewn this day in festal celebration. It took me back to the days when I was a kid and I sang in choirs on Palm Sunday and we sang that every Palm Sunday. And the passages were read, this passage was read. And you envision this roadway from Bethphage, Bethany, into Jerusalem that is lined with people with garments on the ground and this, and this donkey with, with her foal and Jesus riding, not upon both of them, but riding upon the foal, entering into the city to these choruses of praise. Do you know where that chorus of praise comes from? It comes from Psalm 118. Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, it's a doorway, folks. It's a doorway. When you see a citation like this, walk through the doorway. Go back to the passage. We've read it already once this morning. 
But do you hear what that little verse is surrounded by? Did you catch what that little verse is surrounded by? Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see what this verse is designed to do? You see why Matthew uses it? He wants to take us back to to Psalm 118. He certainly wants us to rejoice in the coming of the king, but he wants us not to lose sight of the fact that this king who has come will be rejected, and his rejection becomes the foundation, the basis upon which faith and the church and the whole purpose of God rest. The one the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then this is the verse that becomes a refrigerator magnet. This is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice in it. What day? Not a day like today. Not a day like yesterday. Not a day when the sun is shining and the sky is blue and the breezes are blowing and you just want to be outside. No, beloved friends. The day that the Lord made is the day upon which He, in grace and mercy, secured salvation. It is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a day of vengeance. But you want to know what this kingdom is like? You can read through the Old Testament. Look up day of the Lord in a good concordance. It will take you to passages which will describe, depict the day of the Lord as the day of the visitation of God's just judgment upon the nations. But you want to know what this kingdom is like? This is a kingdom in which the Lord visits his judgment, visits his vengeance, not upon the guilty, but upon the innocent, so that the guilty may go free. It's upside down, folks. It is utterly and entirely counterintuitive, upside down. It does not work according to the math of merit. The math of merit that we are so influenced and affected and shaped by. It's a different kind of a kingdom. It's a kingdom in which grace and mercy reign. It is a kingdom in which the vengeance of God is visited upon the innocent in order that the guilty might be set free. That's why Matthew includes that. Hosanna, Hosanna. Go back to Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. And then I like the ESV rendering of this verse. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords and bear it up to the horns of the altar. Graphic portrayal of Jesus 
the innocent one, prophetically depicted as being bound with cords up to the place of sacrifice. And what are the words that most naturally flow from the psalmist in the two following verses? You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let Matthew 21.9 take you back to Psalm 118. Then, finally, let Matthew 21, verses 12 to 14, take you back to their source. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Oh, to camp on this, Jesus comes to put things right. Don't you want a king who will put things right? Don't you want a kingdom where things are put right? Jesus comes to restore justice and righteousness. And what he does in the temple on this particular day in overturning the tables of the money changers and dispersing them out of the temple temple is a picture of renewal and restoration. He will put things right. And then there's this citation from Isaiah 56. Ah, I love this passage. Matthew only gives us a portion of it. See, let it be a doorway. Walk through the doorway. Walk into this world that is opened up to you by that little citation. Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give within my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. To the eunuchs who can't have children who can't see the realization of a joy. God says, I'll give you something better. I'm going to carve your name into the interior walls of the temple permanently. You have a home here. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, foreigners, non-Jews, Gentiles, who love the name of the Lord and desire to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. And then just notice, Somebody pointed this out to me this week. Then just noticed. Notice. Back in Matthew 21. Who is it who comes to the temple 
after the temple has been cleansed. The blind and the lame, the outcasts, the destitute, those who don't have a place. See how different this kingdom is? This is a kingdom in which Jesus makes a place, cleanses a place for those who don't have a place, creates a home for those who don't have a home. I say this pretty regularly. I'll say it now as we prepare to come to the table. This is a table for the blind and the lame. This is a table for the outcast. This is a table for those who don't have a home. This is not a table for those who, like those who occupied the temple, hawking their wares, creating a place of commerce in a place that is to be a place home for the nations. This is not a table for the self-righteous and those who have scrubbed themselves up well enough to come. This is a table for those who know they're blind and lame and they need a home. And that's the kind of kingdom that King Jesus comes to inaugurate. Let's pray and ready ourselves to come to the table. Lord Jesus.